The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Father, let's begin tonight by talking about these, uh, this recent event that happened in Las Vegas with the mm. mass shooting there. I believe it was over 50 people that were killed mm. and more than 500 that were injured there. And my question is, Father, how is it that after every act of violence like this, there, the question automatically comes out from everyone asking why. Why does why do things like this happen? Uh, everyone always instantly searches for a motive. That's the big big search now. Everyone is searching for a motive. Why did this happen? Why did this person do that? And how is it that people don't understand the fact that this is what man does? This is this is the result of original sin. Man is born as a fundamentally flawed being. He has tendencies <laughs> towards evil, and our culture today has completely given up the fight of fighting against those tendencies of evil. And so our culture now has just completely given in to this life of sin. And it's it's just astounding that people are still surprised by things like this. Because if you look at sin, what sin is, is essentially an act of, of worship, of homage paid to the devil, to Satan. That's what sin is. And when you have a culture that gives in to this life of sin, they are essentially slaves of Satan. And this is what he is going to do. Satan hates life. He hates, he hates God's greatest gift of life, and so he will do everything in his power to destroy it, use his servants to destroy it. But it seems that, that people are just, just totally blown away by this still, and it's amazing that we live in a country where every day more than 3,000 babies are murdered, cruelly murdered, and in just the most vicious, terrible, unimaginable, unspeakable, just demonic ways possible. More than 3,000 every single day in America. And yet there's, there's next to no media coverage about this. There's no outrage. There, there's nothing, essentially, in comparison to we have this, this mass shooting where 50-some lives are lost, 500 are injured, and it's all over the news worldwide for days and weeks and months. And we'll be talking about this for so long. And how is it, Father, that people just turn a blind eye? a blind eye to, to the real evil of abortion that's happening in our country. There are about 10 questions, but <laughs> they're, they're all good questions, though. And, uh, well, you, you know, Tom, I mean, there, there are many different aspects of this whole problem. As tragic as it is, and, you know, we pray for those who were victims, obviously. And uh, that's something we as traditional Catholics have to always keep in mind, that uh, a corporal... Work of mercy is, is to lend physical aid, but the spiritual works of mercy bind us all to, to pray for the living and the dead and to pray for those who are victims of these outrages. And um, we should, you know, keep them in our prayers. As our fellow countrymen, even, you know, there's a certain bond there, you know. But with regard to uh, the, the questioning that people do, for example, after the... Uh, after this happened and the news reports were blaring all over the, the country and the news and the, the, the airports and, and the, our homes and so on, 
<clears throat> about this tragedy and people were spellbound by it, almost as spellbound as they were uh, at 9-11. They were just stunned by this news, you know. Um, <clears throat> you had the celebrities. The celebrities immediately came on and they were saying, how can this happen? As you say, what's happening to our world? And of course the answer is, they are happening to our world, right? In other words, when they asked the question with this kind of doughy-eyed innocence, um, the last thing that they could accept is that they have some responsibility for this. Their, their life, their manners of life, has nothing to do with it. But remember, liberalism is, a, is the most formalized uh, species, as it were, of, of uh, formal contempt. It is the most institutionalized form of formal contempt against the authority of God. And liberalism, in its modern definition, has taken over the world, right? A rejection of God's authority, absolute rejection of God's authority to govern anything. Uh, he's not allowed in the classrooms. He's not allowed in the um, in the law courts. He's not allowed in the stadiums. Uh, somewhat now, at least that's what we're told, right? It's okay to take a knee and an outrage against some perceived uh, wrong, but it's not okay to take a knee in honor of God. You get the, everyone will jump all over you and condemn you for that, like they did with Tim Tebow. But uh, then they wonder why, and the answer is, as you say, they've driven God out of the out of, out of the, the the public life. That's what liberalism does. It drives God out of the public life. The individual human soul has the power to order God out of the soul. It can't order God out of the soul in terms of that that presence of God by you know the soul by its nature reflecting God's perfections. And God knowing the soul and God willing the soul into existence. But in terms of grace, the human soul has the power to order God out of the soul. And as you say, uh, by committing mortal sin, that's what the soul does. By committing mortal sin, the soul actually proclaims Satan its Lord and Master, saying, I obey him. Even if it doesn't think of it that way, even if it's not conscious. Actually, this, in committing mortal sin, that's, that's what the individual person does. The individual person says, Satan is my master, I obey him. And uh, when you have this happen in the individual life, of course, the individual life loses that supernatural life of grace, the life of God and the soul. When you have it happen in society, then you see the entire society go crashing down in flames, so to speak, you know. And you, eventually it becomes to resemble more and more hell on earth. Uh, so that's, that's what's happening. It's simple as that. Our Lady told us at Fatima exactly uh, where the world was going to go uh, if uh, we did not repent, turn to her Immaculate Heart as, as a kind of a refuge and a model for our own hearts, consecrate ourselves to her Immaculate Heart. Our Lady told us these things were going to happen. Of course, the liberals don't want to hear it. You know, I, I must say this, though, okay? <clears throat> the liberals would not be asking, how can this be? <clears throat> if it had come to light that this was a right-wing, <clears throat> Trump-supporting, for example, 
Christian white male, right? Then immediately, and and uh, gun well gun enthusiasts are trying. They immediately tried to point that uh, pin that on him. You know, uh, they'd be all about that. You know, the liberals would be saying, "Ah, you see, we still have that cancer of." Um, Fascism, right? They'd like to paint it that way, but fascism and socialism are are, are, are conjoined twins. You know, I mean, they're they're the same totalitarianism uh, bedfellows. You know, they just use each other like the good cop bad cop syndrome, but neither one of them is is good. They are both bad. They're evil twins, both of them, and. Um, but, you know, you could see the liberals salivating over this in the hopes that this would be a church-going Christian, um, <clears throat> rabid gun enthusiast type, uh, Second Amendment type, and et cetera, et cetera, who, who was a racist and all the rest. They want to, Then they would have no problem believing it. They wouldn't be asking, how could this be happening? Um, the liberals were asking, how can, how can this be happening insofar as we haven't in, uh, enacted stringent gun control laws? There, there the question is, why haven't we done that? How can this be happening in the sense that we have not made it impossible because we've made it impossible for people to have guns? That's what immediately they go to. And of course, this was a great contrast between Hillary Clinton and her fellow uh, liberals, the Democrats, who were all saying, "Up, oh, gun control, gun control, gun control." That's that's now. <clears throat> while others were saying, "We must pray for these people. We must have uh, serious um, compassion for the victims, and so on." Uh, immediately, the liberal Democrats are shouting, "Gun control!" That's their mantra. Okay. Um, uh, some start talking about God. And others start talking about government, gun control, because government is their god. As long as they're government officials, it will be their god. Anyway, let's put that one. Someone suggested that actually this, uh, this shooter was targeting this particular audience because of the more conservative political bent expressed in the country western music scene. They'd sung God Bless America, uh, there probably were quite a number of American flags in, in evidence. I, I didn't actually see the, the, the venue before the shooting started. Um, but I would bet that there was a lot of patriotism expressed in this. And so the, the uh, ISIS, you know, the, the uh, Islamic State people began to immediately crow. This was their operative. This was an Islamic so uh, soldier, ISIS soldier who was radicalized to do this and there were denials all around immediately knee-jerk denials no 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 that's out of the question there's no evidence for this this is isis and the death throes just grasping for straws to gain some kind of credibility but then the sheriff of las uh, of las vegas himself uh, came out and said uh, <clears throat> that Perhaps this was someone who was radicalized some a few months ago, which gave the impression that he had some evidence that there was something behind this, you know. Um, uh, just curious, you know, see, one thing that, that was published since um, this terrible event happened was that he had been prescribed a form of uh, a drug, 
a drug that can provoke um, a very, uh, what is it, uh, strong reactions, okay, even vicious reactions, because the drug in some people with their metabolism can remove the restraints that they have. That would hold them hold them back otherwise from doing something drastic, you know. So that's but it is interesting when you look at these these mass shootings, <clears throat> at least in America, that seems to be a common factor. There seem three things that seem to be present in instance after instance of these of these mass shootings. Um <clears throat> Uh, hard rock, uh, heavy metal rock, uh, or whatever you know. This 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 this, this violent music uh, scene, um, videos, videos, violent videos, and video games, and uh, also the drugs, the psych psycho drugs. You know. Now, how many were present in this case? They're talking about this drug that this man was taking. I guess a Valium or some form of Valium. <clears throat> and um, that, at least he was prescribed this, let's put it that way. And uh, what other else he was in in terms of, of music and, uh, and uh, if he was into video games, I don't know. They say he was very, very wealthy and rather somewhat eccentric and also a very disagreeable sort of individual. Uh, he had been in for about 10 years an employee of the federal government. I think for eight of those years working with the IRS. You know? So, in other words, he did not fit the, the profile the liberals wanted to have of someone who would do this horrible thing. And so they're left to uh, now say, well, how could this possibly happen? As if to say, <clears throat> how could anybody but a right-wing conservative so and so, who can, who else would do such a thing? But time after time after time, they're finding it is their own <coughs> creatures of liberalism who are doing these these awful things. Supposedly, a girlfriend from the Philippines. There are those who are saying that she's Islamic herself. I don't know. There are many people who are married to Islamic women who don't necessarily do such things. Um, or haven't yet, anyway. Is that an adequate explanation? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that necessarily is, is an adequate explanation for what this man did. If he had been turned by radical Islam and become a, a true Islamic in the sense that he follows the Quran and he follows the Hadith of, uh, of Muhammad, then one could understand. Okay, now he's been radicalized because he's following the, the actual dictates of the Islamic religion uh, as it came from Mohammed. Okay, <coughs> that, that's an explanation they don't want. The modern liberals will not tolerate that as an explanation. Right? It's off the table. But Tom, I think what you said really sums it up though. Human life <clears throat> has become so cheapened <clears throat> by what liberalism has done in society, especially in terms of just devaluing human life right from the womb. 
also in terms of, uh, of euthanasia, um, we find that it's, it's not uncommon for people to be just basically morphine to, to death. If somebody along the line who has the access and the means and the opportunity decides that their quality of life is not what it should be, I wouldn't want to live like that and say so you can't either, and so they feel entitled to kill somebody. But when you, when you realize the, 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 the satanic evil of abortion, you realize that the millions and millions, tens of millions of children who've been, who've been put to death cruelly, executed in the womb, by uh, basically medical terrorists, uh, except for one thing, the medical terrorists are the ones who are making a lot of money. They're making money off there. They really are contract killers. Um, you know, you realize if we're going to degrade the value of human life to this extent and basically deny the existence of the soul, then not only have we lost our moorings as Americans, even because America was built on that fundamental Christian understanding of the individual human life and um, the human person, uh, regardless of whether they were a, the king or the, the, the rich man or the pauper or the professional or the laborer, they have the same legal rights, right? Before God, there's a, this, this uh, equality of the value of soul, as it were, We've lost that, but we've lost the, lost the very the very um, basis for our belief um, as Catholics, uh, as Christians at all. We've, we've lost that. If we if we make peace with the idea of abortion and do not consider that to be a war against humanity, but even more than that, a war against God, and uh, we we even strike a truce with it, we've just lost everything. Uh, how can it, you know, so what, I, what I'm saying is basically what you would say too. As we have the liberals saying, <coughs> how can this happen? How can this happen? We would be saying, how can this not happen? It's impossible that this wouldn't happen. It's necessary that this happens because of what you've done and continue to do to our world, our society, our young people in the modern public school systems. And <clears throat> divorce, <clears throat> destroying any sense of loyalties to the families. <clears throat> uh, I mean, you, you, you have the divorced father and his girlfriend, the divorced mother and her boyfriend, and we're all supposed to get along as though it doesn't matter. And the children, the child is put in the middle. What does this do to a child's sense of just this natural bond? Loyalty, right? It destroys it utterly. And it makes uh, for a very cynical young person growing up to be, well, sometimes just a, a very hopeless, you know, young adult. So, so yeah, this is this is what we're dealing with. It's the world that they have made. And uh, the solution, of course, as you know, is to turn to God and to make people understand that they have to turn back to God, repent, 
and make reparation for the scandal they've caused, mm -hmm. especially to the young people. Father, you, you make that the point often about the fact that human beings have souls, and mm -hmm. when man ceases to be good, he doesn't just become like an animal, or become mm -hmm. like a devil because he has a soul. And mm -hmm. you mentioned how the, the Las Vegas shooter may have been radicalized by, by Islam, um, and, and there's, there's no system that does that better than Islam, turn a, a man into a devil, essentially. But it goes right, right, right along with everything else that's happening in, in society. There's liberalism and everything else, all this other stuff, and, and they work hand in hand with Islam and everything else to turn men into devils. And that's essentially what we have now, just a society mm. of devils. And so things like this will, will continue to happen for as long as, as liberalism prevails. Uh, I'm afraid so. No, this is exactly Satan's message, though. Turn from God, don't listen to him, listen to me. Mm -hmm. And as long as people are willing to do that, uh, then that's who they're going to resemble. You know? The image of God is in man. Satan wants the image of Satan in man. He wants all, of, all mankind to bear the image of Satan. How do they do that? By their rebellion against God. He wants them all to carry that mark. <clears throat> he considers it to be a badge, a mark of honor to himself. He's proud of it because of his pride. He's proud. Mm -hmm. But then you look at people like Saul Alinsky, you know, the great revolutionary mentor of Barack Obama and, and uh, Hillary Clinton, right? Dedicating his rules for radicals to Lucifer, the first great revolutionary who rebelled and gained his own kingdom, kingdom of hell. Sololinsky is the, the modern liberal um, Trotsky, as it were, for the, for, the whole, for the whole world, leading the revolution you know, worldwide. He's gone now, <clears throat> but I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid his spirit, as it were, his malevolent spirit, is still very much at work in his, in his protégés. And... Uh, but the, the, this is their model. You know, there's a man who explicitly made Satan's rebelliousness the model for his life and what he wants to uh, make the model for the entire world. Absolutely, this is what Satan wants. Mm -hmm. He wants to revolutionaries. They want the revolution en permanence, as they're saying. It continued, endless, ongoing revolution. And they're getting it. Uh, Father, Father, let's let's move on though. Let's. I think they are. <laughs> well, so God says enough. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, let's move on though back to this this correction that we've been talking about. We received an email from a viewer who mentioned how several months ago there was an analysis done by a certain priest in the SSPX, and he said that according to his analysis there were no errors, no heresy contained in Francis' document, uh, Amoris Laetitia. And, but at that time was when, Fran was when Francis and uh, SSPX were in talks of reuniting, and the SSPX was apparently on the verge of signing on with Francis. But now that that deal is apparently off the table for the foreseeable future, supposedly, uh, now it seems that Bishop Fillet has kind of done a 180, and now he is signing this correctio saying that, yes, this, this Francis is teaching heresy. Is there a contradiction there, Father? Well, yes, and, and necessarily so. I mean, when... You're, on the one hand, playing politics in the sense that you want to kind of strike a deal with your, someone who, who despises what you stand for. 
you know, you're going to be compromising, you're going to be looking for a way to sort of minimize the, the problems, to make it look legitimate that you seek to strike a deal with them, right? Uh, but when there's no deal, then you go into attack mode you know, and try to justify why there's no deal, why we can't do this right now. And show, well, look, I mean, this, these are the, the bad things about this person that we, we you know, <clears throat> this is the obstacle. Um, I mean, Hitler and Stalin were, were mortal enemies, you know, not because they weren't birds of a feather. They were birds of a feather, and that's why they were mortal enemies. They, they, <clears throat> they were going to contend over control, right? And one wanted domination, and they wanted to dominate the other. Um, but they struck the deal, right? They stuck, struck the pact over Poland, and uh, they made an arrangement under cover that you know the Russians and the and the Germans would invade Poland. Back, you know, say that was the beginning of World War Two. You know, supposedly. Uh, and even the Soviets, the communists, were scandalized that Stalin would make a deal with the, that horrible Hitler. And uh, the fascists, of course, were scandalized that Hitler would make a deal with that horrible Stalin, right? But they had been denouncing each other left and right, and then they strike a deal with each other, you know? <clears throat> and as long as the deal is going on, you know, they're comrades in arms and bosom buddies, and then, of course, inevitably, they wind up you know, attacking each other to see, okay, now, we got that far, let's, let's duke it out now. Am I drawing a parallel between that and Francis and, uh, and, and uh, Bishop Fillet? Well, yes and no. I, I just say that, um, you know, I, I, I just think that when, you're, when you want to strike some kind of a, at a deal, and I think the deal is uh, not an honest, you know, it's, it's a nefarious deal, uh, making like a deal with the devil or making it a bargain with, with the devil, uh, you have to try to justify it somehow. And by doing that, you have to minimize the, the wrongs and kind of try to promote the good points, you know? Like, you know, gee, we're striking this devil with the, de the devil, this deal with the devil, but you got to admit, I mean, he, he really is a hard worker, and he does have some admirable qualities, right? And you've got to downplay... <clears throat> You got to downplay the uh, the evil so you can sort of make it look plausible. But then, of course, when there's an obstacle, <clears throat> then you've got to save face too. So maybe uh, Bishop Fillet is sincere in fighting heresies. Maybe he's read this Correctio Filialis concerning seven heresies that Francis is propagating in Amoris Laetitia. And maybe he's not. I mean, uh, Bishop Tissier de Malaray some years ago said this even about, about John Paul II as propagating heresies, as far as I recall. I seem to recall that he actually came out and said that. You know? Didn't have any practical effect, though, that I could see. Um, now, Francis has signed on to this, this um, correctio. And, um, of course, I mean, there are those who are championing this and saying, oh, yes, yes, you know, how wonderful that they're standing up for the truth, for recognizing the truth. You mentioned also 
But there was a father, is it G-E-I-Z-E? G-L... Is that it, Father? G-L-E-I-Z-E? Okay. Uh, with the Society of St. Pius X, who said uh, when uh, Marius Laetitia first came out that there were no heresies in it. Okay. So I think, again, you're going to get a very broad range of views within the Society of St. Pius X, the clergy, um, because there is no real theological unity among them. I think they're all over the map, and some are even off the map when it comes to theological understanding of things, and even their understanding of traditional Catholicism, and how far they're willing to compromise with the Novus Ordo. Um, what changes they're willing to accept, and, and so on and so forth. I think in the Society of St. Pius X, if you were to interview them, the individual clergy, I think you'd find that there's a broader range of theological uh, concepts and ideas and understandings as you get in the Novus Ordo clergy, practically. You know, maybe not the extremes of one end to the other, but I still think you'd find that there's a very broad range of what they understand by traditional Catholicism. So, um, you know, there may be, well, those those in the Society of St. Pius X, the clergy, who are really unhappy that uh, Bishop Fillet signed on to that correctio, thinking, <clears throat> why would he, <clears throat> why would he accuse the Holy Father of heresy? We've already acknowledged that there's no heresy in there, right? Others in the Society of St. Pius X might be thinking, why would he sign this correctio filialis? Because we object to the filialis. Why would he say a filial correction when we don't really, in practice, recognize Francis insofar as obeying what he tells us to do? So how are we filial to him? We certainly shouldn't be, right? Uh, so, as I say, I, I think it's a real, a real mishmash uh, theologically in the Society of St. Pius X, with very little consistency anywhere. But, the, but remember, Tom, the, the inconsistency begins with Philae. The inconsistency begins with Bishop Philae. Dances around this and dances around that. Just as the inconsistency in the new church begins with Francis. I mean, he's the ultimate inconsistency. I mean, here he is. He's talked against this gender identification, gender choosing movement, saying that this is wrong, this is against God. Right? He's made some very strong statements against uh, this, what do they call the gender, gender identity, identity movement or whatever. And then he writes a book, right? I'm sure I have an article here. He writes a book, and he chooses to write the preface for his own book, A Gender Theory Advocate. Uh, an advocate of the very ideas that he himself has just condemned. Valerie Fidelli, an Italian minister of education. Italian minister of education, university, and research who is seen as a strident LGBT and gender theory advocate. And Francis chooses her to write the preface of his book. So he holds her out there as some sort of a spokesperson on this. I mean, this is a typical modernism, you know? Uh, condemn this, yeah, more or less, so that the conservatives all cheer for a while, and then you 
what you do in the practical order undermines whatever you've said. It just undermines it entirely. Uh, even when you say something that is cons- consistent with traditional Catholicism, you immediately have to uh, blow it up, you have to annihilate it by doing something outrageous, which shows an utter contradiction. So here's the here's the problem. Francis for the Novus Ordo is is showing this complete inconsistency. He's all you know contradicting himself left and right. And this is wreaking havoc with the people in the... I mean, even those who still have the faith who are going to the part of this Novus Ordo and look to Francis for leadership in their faith. It's wreaking havoc with their faith. They're being jerked around everywhere that it goes. And they have to constantly adjust and constantly explain, constantly justify. This is undermining their faith. Then on the other hand, you have Bishop Fillet, Bernard Fillet, who for the Society of St. Pius X is kind of mimicking this dance that Francis is doing within the Society of St. Pius X. Back and forth, this, that, the other thing. Uh, what is it today? Where are we going with this today? One day we say we're, we're really seeking unity with the Holy Father, and the next day we're signing this Correctio Filiale saying that he's actually propagating heresy. As though that, that has no effect on the other thing? Is that they're totally unrelated? There's, there's no problem there? And eventually people just kind of throw up their hands and say, this is irrational. And really it, it is. It, that, where they become like children who grow up in a dysfunctional home where there's no consistent rhyme or reason to how they're raised. <clears throat> Um, it, it does enormous damage, sad to say. And um, it's interesting invention that uh, Father uh, G L E I Z E Glancy, his name is Jean Michel, I think, his first name. Uh, so, uh, indicated a French background. Uh, how he would pronounce his last name? Glancy, I don't know. Glancy, I have no idea. But the point is, he was speaking out in a rather lengthy treatment of Amorius Laetitia when it first came out, as a priest of the Society of St. Pius X, right? His words were taken as some kind of a St. Pius X Society analysis, right? It wasn't uh, condemned by the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X, so it was allowed to pass as a worthy analysis of... uh, Amoris Laetitia, and almost like a floating a trial balloon to see you know how people would react. I guess I don't know, uh, but his his analysis uh, came it led him to the conclusion that there were no heresies in Amoris Laetitia, and now the Correctio insists that not only are there heresies, but Francis is propagating seven heresies by Amoris Laetitia, and Fillet has signed on to say yes, he has. And yes, I stand against him in this. So, the traditional Catholic people need consistency. uh, consistency. And um, that means that um, they need somebody who will stand by the faith and not not follow politics. Mm -hmm. Father, what what about Cardinal Burke? We received an email from someone asking about him, how... He seemed to be uh, so so against 
Francis, and he was part of the Dubia Four and, and all that for a while. But then he kind of had a falling out with Francis, but now apparently he's mended fences with him, and he's back on the Vatican court, and now there's this... this he's an advisor. He's not... He's gone. He, he was the prefect, but, he, you know, some say, oh, he's been reinstated. He hasn't been reinstated. He, he's, he's being brought back somewhat into the limelight. Uh, you might say rehabilitated, like the way, <laughs> you know... Mm -hmm. How they rehabilitate the disgraced leaders. <coughs> um, I guess I don't know what what he had to do to to secure a rehabilitation, but he's certainly not the prefect of this of this court anymore. But re remember, Tom, <coughs> when they were naming bishops and cardinals back, you know, for the last fifty something years, the modernists are choosing men who they believe can be counted on to toe the party line. That no matter what else is of a concern to them, they will ultimately toe the party line, no matter what. This is why Archbishop Lefebvre was so surprising to them, that he, in the final analysis, <clears throat> despite the accusations that people make, oh, he went along with this, oh, he went along with that, oh, he said the new mass for a while, oh, he signed the documents of Vatican II. <clears throat> but ultimately, he would not toe the party line. Others who would not sign, the, let's say, some of the documents of Vatican II, ultimately they caved in. What was it about their character that made they ultimately would surrender to the Novus Ordo? Whereas Monsignor Lefebvre was one of very few and the only one who would stand up publicly before the whole world so that he drew the fire of all of the modernists at him because of what he was doing in uh, starting a seminary and ordaining priests and now threatening to consecrate bishops for the sake of continuity. What set him apart and all I can say is uh, grace, you know, grace enabled him to overcome what I consider to be his natural tendencies to want to be a diplomat. I mean, he was a member of the Vatican Diplomatic Corps. He, he was uh, appointed as the Apostolic Nuncio to all of French-speaking Africa. You don't get into that position by being naturally contrary you get into a position like that by being kind of naturally agreeable. And you're only contrary when it's a matter of, of conscience, but you're always trying to be agreeable, trying to find a way to be diplomatic. Right? And I'm no expert on Archbishop Fev um, by any means, uh, but I always got the impression that if there were a way to, he was always trying to find a way to work things out. So as not to give scandal, not to have conflict. But if it came down to a matter of principle, and he felt it was a matter of right and wrong, he, he, nothing would move him. Nothing would break him. He would not yield on it. Okay? And I think that's what sets him apart from all the others. Cardinal Burke and all the rest of them, uh, they may feel very uncomfortable about some of these things going on. They may protest, they may issue statements about how they find this unacceptable, they're going to correct the Holy Father for this. Ultimately, it wasn't the cardinals who ever did that. It was these 
uh, lesser clergy and then and, uh, and um and lay people who issued this correction it wasn't the cardinals who were saying we're going to correct the lay father <clears throat> because they could be pressured because they would be succumb to pressure you know what it is it's the same thing that moved saint thomas more and bishop john fisher that despite all the pressure that was brought onto them by first of all Cromwell, right? Uh, well, actually, uh, first of all, uh, um, Cardinal Wolsey, like by Wolsey, right? And then later by Cramner and Cromwell and so on, they would not, uh, well, as Thomas More said, I would not approve of the marriage. I would not approve of the marriage. That was the thing. That's why you sought my blood, he said. Because they would not yield to the marriage. And there are certain places where you have men like this, when it comes to a matter of principle, they, they will not yield. So I thank God for giving the, the grace to Archbishop Lefebvre. I, I don't see that, for what it's worth, too much in evidence. Um, in others, maybe by the grace of God, they will. Uh, be able to take a stand finally after all this dancing around they do, tangoing or what do they call it? dancing with the devil. I hope they do take a stand and say this is this is contrary to the faith. Um, I will not follow you in this. I cannot follow you in this. I must condemn this. Um, in any case, uh, and and without that. Without that kind of leadership, um, the traditional Catholic people are left pretty much to fend. Um, to fend for themselves, this is the kind of leadership they really need. And uh, they don't seem to be getting it. Um, it reminds me of the Old Testament, too. You know, there were times when God made it very clear having no prophet in the land was a great punishment. We look back in the Old Testament, we see Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, and, and Isaiah and the, the prophets, you know, who stood up and spoke the words of God. <clears throat> but when the people were being punished for their refusal to hear the prophets that he sent to them, and even killing the prophets, there'd be no prophet in the land. And everyone suffered because of it. Well, we need someone, not a politician, right? but a prophet. And uh, as I mentioned before, I mean, there have been times when there have been very good popes who failed miserably because they lived in times when we needed not good popes, but great popes. And they, they just came up short, seemingly, right? And um, there were times when we needed great saints and God sent them, you know? Well, uh, we need that now. You know, but the great saints, I'm sure, for our time, are going to come from the school of our Blessed Mother, from the school, let's say, of Fatima, consecrating themselves to Immaculate Heart, and following uh, Our Lady's lead at Fatima, doing what she said we must do. And uh, only in the light of what Our Lady said at Fatima are we going to be able to understand what's happening in the world. And only in the light of what Our Lady said at Fatima, by responding to it, and responding to it, can we actually address what's happening in the world productively and deal with it. So that's that's where I, I go. I mean, we're we're going to be celebrating the hundredth anniversary 
the, the, the centenary of Our Lady's sixth apparition of Fatima, the miracle of the sun and sun. On October 13th, <clears throat> here at Immaculate Conception, we're going to have a solemn mass offered at 5 o'clock in the evening. Friday night, beginning at 5 p.m., October 13th, a solemn mass here at Immaculate Conception Church. At 6.30, the candlelight rosary procession begins from the church. We're going to pray the 15 decades of the rosary as we walk. We'll carry the statue of Our Lady in the procession. We'll return to the church for benediction. There'll be refreshments served afterwards. And uh, it should be a very beautiful evening. And I, I hope and pray that, our, that heaven accepts that homage, a little bit of homage that we could render to Our Lady and Our Lady's love for her Lord, our Lord, her Son, our God, Jesus Christ. And um, that, again, we can draw graces where the graces are so desperately needed right now. Definitely. Father, let's answer one more question here because this seems to go nicely with, with what we've been talking about with Francis and his and his heresies. So this, uh, this topic of Sedevicantism, which seems to come up r- rather often in our programs. But there's a, uh, an interesting question here that I don't believe we d- we've discussed this angle before. This is from a person who says, I am not a Sedevicantist. And they ask, should I infer that because you stated that the documents of the Second Vatican Council do not contradict neither scripture nor doctrine, that the Sedevicantist position is based only on the changes of Catholic traditions that emerged from the Council? Well, I'm a little puzzled. Uh, maybe um, I'm trying to situate this in what I've said because he's drawing uh, a connection with something I've said in the past, right? Mm-hmm. I, I believe, Father, if I may, I believe it was from a, a program, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was when we were talking about Archbishop Lefebvre and how he signed some of the documents. That's exactly that what I'm too. thinking, too. I think he's going from that. I asked Archbishop Lefebvre about the last document signed. Then Archbishop Lefebvre responded, well, the, the contradictions to divine revelation are implicit. I didn't actually say in, the, in that program what I think about that. Okay? I said this was Archbishop Lefebvre's take on it, because what we were talking about is Archbishop Lefebvre signing the document. Okay? Now, one would think, if someone signed Dignitatis Humanae Personae, I think that was it, Dignitatis Humanae Personae, if one one signed that document, the Archbishop Lefebvre would not have signed it even if he saw implicit contradictions to divine revelation and to, you know, the dogmatic teaching of the Church, that he still wouldn't have signed it. At the time, if if he'd even seen at the time there were implicit contradictions, so I gathered from what Archbishop Lefebvre told me at this time, this is back in the early 1980s, that he had come to see that there were implicit contradictions after the council was over. Which I, I could understand, because at the beginning of the document, Dignitatis Humanae Personae, the, the, the modernists had allowed to be added a couple of paragraphs that were quite traditional Catholic teaching about the obligation of, of, the, of every conscience to find the truth and to adhere to the true faith and the one true God. Okay? So, maybe the Archbishop at first thought, well, the addition of those two initial paragraphs, in a sense, clear up and clean up that document now and state the Catholic faith, 
And with that in mind, he signed it. I can't, I, if he were here, I would ask him, but he's not here right now. Uh, so I can't. But I'm just trying to put it all together as what he said, in terms of what he said, that he saw in the early 1980s that there were implicit contradictions, and the contradictions would necessarily be between the traditional teaching in the first two paragraphs and whatever came after that. Okay. Now, for my sake, I mean, I'm, I'm not Archbishop Lefebvre, I'm not anywhere near Archbishop Lefebvre, but when I read uh, the Council document on the dignity of the human person, I believe that there are explicit contradictions to divine revelation in that document. Because whereas the document on religious liberty of the Council, the First Vatican Council, begins by saying that everyone has an obligation and conscience to find the truth and to hear the true faith, the true God. Whereas the Church has said in the past that one cannot be constrained to violate his conscience by forcing him to do something that he believes is morally wrong. The Church has never taught that he cannot be restrained from doing something that he believes is right. There's a big difference between my telling you, Tom, uh, I am going to force you to use cocaine against your religious beliefs. And I can constrain you to do that. Or I can constrain you to perform an abortion as a doctor, contrary to your religious beliefs. I can, I can force you to do that. The Church has said you could never do that. Even if mistakenly you believed that something was more immoral, I could not legitimately constrain you, force you to do something that you believed was seriously wrong. Okay? However you mistaken, you may, may have been. Okay? But then, <clears throat> the other side of the coin is, can I prevent you from doing something that you believe is right? Can I restrain you? If you believe that abortion was perfectly okay, and it was an act of compassion, one of the corporal and spiritual works of mercy to, the, to uh, terminate this child's life, right? That it was positively a good thing. And you even had the first church of abortion as your, you know, that was your belief. <coughs> Can I prevent you? Could I forcibly prevent you from doing that? Yes, of course I could. So there are two different matters here. The Church has never taught that one could not be restrained from doing something because it is morally wrong, even though the person doesn't agree. Well, in the document of the Second Vatican Council on religious liberty and the dignity of the human person, it actually crosses that line. It does blur, it blurs that line, it erases the line, essentially doesn't even make a distinction, as I recall. <coughs> I'd have to go back and look at it again, but as I recall, um, between saying that you can't be constrained to do something you know is morally wrong, but you, but you can't be restrained from acting on your conscience either. Whatever it is, no matter how erroneous it is, even if you believe in mass murder as a way of worshiping God, if that's your religion, you can't be restrained from doing that. 
And that message, <clears throat> that's what the gospel teaches. That's the clincher. That it says in there, that's what the gospel teaches. <clears throat> now Vatican II is making that a matter of divine revelation. And I'm sorry, I, I don't believe that as a matter of something being implicitly against the faith. I consider that to be at about as explicit against, as you can get against the Catholic faith, teaching something that the church has never accepted, but teaching that as though it is an actual doctrine of the faith. If not by the um, extraordinary magisterium, at least by the ordinary magisterium of the council. You know? That's pretty serious business. So, uh, just in answer to what the individual says here about what I really think about these council documents, I, I think you could make a very strong case to, that dignitatis humani personae and the liberty of the human person is formally heretical, that it is actually explicitly heretical. Um, in attributing to the gospel a false teaching. As though it's a matter of divine revelation. Um, it's defining a, almost a new doctrine that is contrary to what the church's traditional moral teaching. And Father, would that would that logically lead you to a state of contest position? Uh, that would logically lead you to believe that the, the Second Vatican Council was uh, was a false council. <laughs> that if not at the beginning, somewhere along the line, that the, the Holy Ghost was expelled from the council. Uh, personally, I mean, I believe that the Holy Ghost was never invited to the Council. I think John the Twenty-Third had his own agenda there. The radicals of the Rhine countries and the, the modernists had their own agenda there. <coughs> that there were Catholic bishops who and cardinal who were working on the on the Shema to begin discussion that were very Catholic and would have led to very Catholic conclusions, but they were discarded at the beginning. We know that, and the discarding of those Shema. That were the Shemata that were established to begin the council was a formal rejection of what they stood for. And that was a declaration that we are not here to discuss the Catholic faith. That's how I see it anyway, what it's worth. So I consider Vatican II to be a false council. People who are following this, you know, the Catholic Church does not teach in ambiguities, the Catholic faith does not teach in heterodoxy. And that's what Vatican II is. It's constantly contradicting itself. This is true, but so is this. And they contradict constantly doing that. Uh, that is not the voice of the Catholic Church. That's not the voice of Christ. It certainly isn't the voice of the Holy Ghost. So I think from the very beginning, this was a modernist robber council. You look back at the history of the Church, I mean, there were, there were things that were purporting, them to, purporting to be councils that the church ultimately rejected. And uh, either rejected in part or rejected in, in entirety. And you look in the history of the church, you'll find that. So, uh, no, I think this is a modernist uh, tactic, Vatican II. Um, but in any case, um, so... Do I think Sede Vicomptism, uh, you know, has a I, I do. Personally, I, I, I believe there are very sound theological reasons for believing the Sede Vicomptism position that Francis cannot be the Pope. I've said that before. I've made it clear before. 
that if a man does not formally accept the papacy, even if he's unanimously elected, if all the counts, all the cardinals vote him to be the pope, <clears throat> and he does not <clears throat> accept the office, that he cannot be the pope. And Francis doesn't even believe in the office of the papacy. I've made that very clear, I thought. So again, I've never had anybody address that issue. Nobody has ever actually addressed that issue with me and answered that question. Not even begun to try to discuss it. They just completely ignore it. I think they're making a big mistake myself, you know, for what it's worth. But so I, I gather that our writer here has not really heard any of that. He may have just listened to some of the programs, if not all of them. So, um, I mean, I, the thing is, I do see problems with the state of Accountant's position also. Okay? Uh, so, it's not as though I'm saying it's, it's a, 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 an open and shut case here, signed, sealed, delivered. It's like a matter of divine revelation that the state of Accountant's position is the correct one. There are theological problems with that, and some of them are rather serious theological problems. I realize that. And I think that's why you have the, the, the state of accountants and the anti-state of accountants going at it, because each side is saying the other one would destroy the church. Each saying the other one would undermine the faith um, and undermine uh, belief in Christ's word and destroy the church. And so they're going at it as though they're, mad, they're going to fight to the death over it. Because this, the, state, the state of accountants say, well, if, if you're right that a true pope can do these things, then you're just basically making a mockery of, of the office of the papacy. You're destroying the whole concept of the papacy, and you're making a mockery of Christ's teaching. And the anti-state of accountants say, if you state of accountants uh, you know, are claiming this, you, what you're saying would destroy the church, would undermine the teaching of Christ, and say that uh, the whole church is following somebody who is not really the Pope, and that would be, you know, an, an attack on the church too. They're actually using the same arguments basically fundamentally against each other. <laughs> do they have theological reasons behind it? Yes, they do. And uh, I, I would say from a theological point of view, even from a canonical point of view, I mean, I see the state of Accountant's side as... Uh, I, I just can't explain away the objections. Um, but I do see that the, I mean, I, I do see where I believe, I believe I see where these anti-state of accountants are coming from and why they are almost on the verge of panic about the state of accountants' position. Why, why they interpret that to mean that the state of accountants are actually saying the church is through and why they react the way they do. So impassioned. In such an impassioned way, uh, I don't see that being the case, but I see that they they see it that way, you know. Um, but again, I mean, there is something very, very difficult for a Catholic to accept with a claim that for the last fifty years or so, there's been no valid pope, no real vicar of Christ on earth. That none of these cardinals that exist right now are actually cardinals. So the conclaves, when they're called again, meet they can't really elect popes anyway. <clears throat> and so it's over. I mean, there is no papacy, no traditional means of providing a pope for the church. From here on, 
Yeah, never. From now on. That's a very difficult thing to come to grips with, you know. Um, is it not? It is. It is. It is. For any Catholic, that would be very difficult to come to grips with. I see where they're coming from in that. They're looking down the road, seeing the consequences, and thinking, oh my. Where is this taking us, you know? So I understand that very well. I myself don't have an answer to that. Honestly, I don't. I've heard people glibly say, well, convalidation will take care of that. No, 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 no. No, I, that's not an answer. I'm sorry. Uh, that's not taking the question seriously. And the others say, well, Christ himself will come down and he will appoint somebody. <clears throat> oh, that's really going to help. Uh, that, uh, that, so then you get Luigi, the taxi driver in Venice, Actually, there are no real taxi drivers in those. They have gondolas. But anyway, he stands up and says, Hey, last night I had a vision. I'm now the Pope. And then certainly there are going to be half a dozen people somewhere who are going to sign on <coughs> to Luigi, the taxi driver's papacy. And um, this, is, this is just not, this is not solving the problem. It's adding to the problem. So, I mean, I can actually see the, the, the issues are very thorny. But, I mean, you could fill a library full of books that have been written about the papacy by approved authors of the church. And um, the, that's why, it you know, I always come down to the fact that, look, there are those who don't like what this, but I think, I don't see how we can get around it. No matter how convinced I may be one way or the other, I mean, no matter how convinced you are, one way or the other on the question, you are not the Pope. And you cannot speak ex cathedra dogmatically about your personal opinion of this matter. And thankfully, that's all you've got. You've got your own personal opinion. Uh, you can go to somebody you consider to be a priest or even a theologian and, and uh, get his opinion. But that's his opinion. It's not dogmatic. And you can find priests who have different opinions, like lawyers, like doctors. That's why you get second and third opinions, right? <laughs> because none of that is dogma. That there, are, that there is the papacy, that's dogma. What the papacy is, that's Catholic dogma, the nature of it. But that this or that individual necessarily holds the papacy, that is not dogma. But nobody can make it dogma, okay? And especially when you have very serious and compelling objective reasons for questioning whether someone even has the faith you know, or even believes in the papacy as we know it, as the church has, revealed, has taught it to us, <clears throat> then you can't just <coughs> wave the catechism at somebody and say, aha, you see, I'm right. So... Again, since you insisted on going ahead with that question, uh, knowing full well that we were <laughs> launching out into the deep and lowering the nets and they were going to be breaking because of the draft of fishes, uh, all I can say is um, yes and no. <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I don't even know where, where the question ended there. Um, 
but maybe the question is still open, so maybe we can come back to this <laughs> next maybe. time. We'll, we'll save it for next time, Father. I think we covered enough today. Okay, we'll let the nets break and all the fish go back into <laughs> Sounds and, good. and go home. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for being here tonight, right. Father. Absolutely. Really Tom, it. God bless you. You too. You're a brave man, Tom. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima. To consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.